Section 5 of Once a Week by A. A. Milne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 A Baker's Dozen, Part 1 A Tragedy in Little. The great question of the day is what will become of Sydney? Whenever I think of him now, the unbidden tear wells into my eye and wells down my cheek and wells on to my collar. My friends think I have a cold, and offer me lozenges, but it is Sidney who makes me weep. I fear that I am about to lose him. He came into my life in the following way. Some months ago I wanted to buy some silk stockings, not for myself, for I seldom wear them, but for a sister. The idea came suddenly to me that any woman with a brother and a birthday would simply love the one to give her silk stockings for the other. But, of course, they would have to be the right silk stockings, the fashionable shape for the year, the correct assortment of clocks, and so forth. Then, as to material, could I be sure I was getting silk and not silkette or something inferior? How maddening if, seeing that I was an unprotected man, they palmed off Jaeger on me. Clearly this was a case for outside assistance. So I called in Celia. This, I said to her, is practically the only subject on which I am not an expert. At the same time, I have a distinct feeling for silk stockings. If you can hurry me past all the embarrassing counters safely and arrange for the lady behind the right one to show me the right line in silken hose, I will undertake to pick out half a dozen pairs that would melt any sister's heart. Well, the affair went off perfectly. Celia took the matter into her own hands and behaved just as if I was buying them for her. The shop assistant also behaved as if I were. Fortunately, I kept my head when it came to giving the name and address, no, I said firmly to Celia, not yours, my sister's, and I dragged her away to tea. Now, whether it was because Celia had particularly enjoyed her afternoon, or because she felt that a man who was as ignorant as I about silk stockings must lead a very lonely life, or because I had mentioned casually and erroneously that it was my own birthday that week, I cannot say. But on the following morning I received a little box with a note on the outside which said in her handwriting, Something for you. Be kind to him. And I opened it and found Sidney. He was a Japanese dwarf tree, the merest boy. At eighty or ninety, according to the photographs, he would be a stalwart fellow with thick bark on his trunk, and fir cones, or acorns, or whatever was his specialty, hanging all over him. Just at present he was barely ten. I had only eighty years to wait before he reached his prime. Naturally, I decided to lavish all my care upon his upbringing. I would water him after breakfast every morning, and, when I remembered it, at night— if there was any top-dressing he particularly fancied, he should have it. If he had any dead leaves to snip off, I would snip them. 
It was at this moment that I discovered something else in the box, a card of instructions. I have not got it now, and I have forgotten the actual wording, but the spirit of it was this. Hints on the proper rearing and bringing up of a Japanese dwarf tree. The life of this tree is a precarious one, and if it is to be successfully brought to manhood, the following rules must be carefully observed. 1. This tree requires, above all else, fresh air and exercise. 2. Whenever the sun is shining, the tree should be placed outside, in a position where it can absorb the rays. 3. Whenever the rain is raining, it should be placed outside in a position where it can absorb the wet. 4. It should be taken out for a trot at least once every day. 5. It simply loathes artificial light and artificial heat. If you keep it in your drawing room, see that it is situated as far as possible from the chandelier and the gas stove. 6. It also detests noise. Do not place it on top of the pianola. 7. It loves moonlight. Leave it outside when you go to bed in case the moon should come out. 8. On the other hand, it hates lightning. Cover it up with a canary's cloth when the lightning begins. 9. If it shows signs of drooping, a course of massage will generally bring it round. 10. But in no case offer it buns. Well, I read these instructions carefully and saw at once that I should have to hand over the business of rearing Sydney to another. I have my living to earn, the same as anybody else, and I should never get any work done at all if I had constantly to be rushing home from the office on the plea that it was time for Master Sydney's sunbath. So I called up my housekeeper and placed the matter before her. I said... Let me introduce you to Sidney. He is very dear to me, dearer to me than a... a brother. No, on second thoughts, my brother is perhaps... Well, anyhow, Sidney is very dear to me. I will show my trust in you by asking you to tend him for me. Here are a few notes about his health. Frankly, he is delicate, but the doctors have hope. With care, they think, he may live to be a hundred and fifty. His future is in your hands. My housekeeper thanked me for this mark of esteem and took the card of instructions away with her. I asked her for it a week afterwards, and it appeared that, having committed the rules to memory, she had lost it. But that she follows the instructions, I have no doubt. And certainly, she and Sidney understand each other's ways exactly. Automatically, she gives him his bath, his massage, his run in the park. When it rains or snows or shines, she knows exactly what to do with Sidney. But as a consequence, I see little of him. I suppose it must always be so. We parents must make these sacrifices for our children. Think of a mother only seeing her eldest born for fifteen weeks a year through the long period of his schooling, and think of me doomed to catch only the most casual glimpses of Sidney until he is ninety. For, you know, I might almost say that I never see him at all now. 
As I go to my work, I may, if I am lucky, get a fleeting glance of him on the tiles, where he sits drinking in the rain or sun. In the evening, when I return, he is either out in the moonlight or, if indoors, shunning the artificial light with the cloth over his head. Indeed, the only times when I really see him to talk to are when Celia comes to tea with me. Then my housekeeper hurries him in from his walk or his sunbath and puts him, brushed and manicured, on my desk, and Celia and I whisper fond nothings to him. I believe Celia thinks he lives there. As I began by saying, I weep for Sydney's approaching end. For my housekeeper leaves this week, a new one takes her place. How will she treat my poor Sydney? The old card of instructions is lost. What can I give her in its place? The legend that Sydney's is a precious life, that he must have his morning bath, his run, his glass of hot water after meals, she would laugh at it. Besides, she may not be at all the sort of foster mother for a Japanese dwarf tree. It will break my heart if Sidney dies now, for I had so looked forward to celebrating his ninetieth birthday with him. It will hurt Celia, too, but her grief, of course, will be an inferior affair. In fact, a couple of pair of silk stockings will help her to forget him altogether. THE FINANCIER, PART ONE This is how I became a West African mining magnate with a stake in the empire. During February, I grew suddenly tired of waiting for the summer to begin. London, in the summer, is a pleasant place, and chiefly so because you can keep on buying evening papers to see what Kent is doing. In February, life has no such excitements to offer. So I wrote to my solicitor about it. I want you, I wrote, to buy me fifty rubber shares so that I can watch them go up and down. And I added, brokerage one-eighth, to show that I knew what I was talking about. He replied tersely as follows. Don't be a fool. If you have any money to invest, I can get you a safe mortgage at five percent. Let me know. It's a funny thing how the minds of solicitors run upon mortgages. If they would only stop to think for a moment, they would see that you couldn't possibly watch a safe mortgage go up and down. I left my solicitor alone and consulted Henry on the subject. In the intervals between golf and golf, Henry dabbles in finance. "'You don't want anything gilt-edged, I gather,' he said." It's wonderful how they talk. I want to watch it go up and down, I explained patiently, and I indicated the required movement with my umbrella. And what about a little flutter in oil, he went on, just like a financier in a novel. I'll have a little flutter in raspberry jam, if you like, anything, as long as I can rush every night for the last edition of the evening papers and say now and then, Good heavens, I'm ruined. Then you'd better try a gold mine, said Henry bitterly, in the voice of one who had tried. Take your choice, 
and he threw the paper over to me. I don't want a whole mine, only a vein or two. Yes, this is very interesting, I went on, as I got among the West Africans. The scoring seems to be pretty low. I suppose it must have been a wet wicket. H.E. Reef, one and three quarters, two. He did a little better in the second innings. One half, Boffin River, five sixteenths, seven sixteenths. They followed on, you see, but they saved the innings defeat. By the way, which figure do I really keep my eye on when I want to watch them go up and down? Both. One eye on each. And don't talk about Boffin River to me. Is it like that, Henry? I am sorry. I suppose it's too late now to offer you a safe mortgage at five per cent. I know a man who has some. Well, perhaps you're right. On the next day, I became a magnate. The Jaguar mine was the one I fixed upon for two reasons. First, the figure immediately after it was one, which struck me as a good point from which to watch it go up and down. Secondly, I met a man at lunch who knew somebody who had actually seen the Jaguar mine. He says that there's no doubt about there being lots there. Lots of what? Jaguars or gold? Ah, he didn't say. Perhaps he meant jaguars. Anyhow, it was an even chance, and I decided to risk it. In a week's time, I was the owner of what we call in the city a block of jaguars, bought from one Herbert Bellingham, who, I suppose, had been got at by his solicitor and compelled to return to something safe. I was a West African magnate. My first two months as a magnate were a great success. With my heart in my mouth, I would tear open the financial editions of the evening papers to find one day that jaguars had soared like a rocket to one and one-sixteenth, the next that they had dropped like a stone to one and one-thirty-second, there was one terrible afternoon when, for some reason, which will never properly be explained, we sank to fifteen-sixteenths. I think the European situation had something to do with it, though this is naturally not admitted. Lord Rothschild, I fancy, suddenly threw all his jaguars on the market. He sold and sold and sold, and only held his hand when, in desperation, the Tsar granted the concession for his new South End to Siberia Railway. Something like that. But he never wrecked how the private investor would suffer, and there was I, sitting at home and sending out madly for all the papers, until my rooms were littered with copies of The Times, The Financial News, Answers, The Feathered World, and Home Chat. Next day, we were up to thirty-one thirty seconds, and I was able to breathe again. But I had other pleasures than these. Previously, I had regarded the city with awe, but now I felt a glow of possession come over me whenever I approached it. Often, in these first two months, I used to lean against the mansion house in a familiar sort of way. Once, I struck a match against the Royal Exchange— 
and what an impression of financial acumen I could make in a drawing-room by a careless reference to my block of jaguars. Even those who misunderstood me and thought I spoke of my flock of jaguars were startled. Indeed, life was very good just then. But lately, things have not been going well. At the beginning of April, jaguars settled down at one and one-sixteenth. Though I stood for hours at the club tape, my hair standing up on end and my eyeballs starting from their sockets, jaguars still came through steadily at one and one-sixteenth. To give them a chance of doing something, I left them alone for a whole week, with what agony you can imagine. Then I looked again, a whole week, and anything might have happened. Pauper or millionaire? No, still one and one-sixteenth. Worse was to follow. Editors actually took to leaving out jaguars altogether. I suppose they were sick of putting one and one-sixteenth in every edition, but how ridiculous it made my idea seem of watching them go up and down. How blank life became again. And now what I dreaded most of all has happened. I have received a progress report from the mine. It gives the total footage for the month, special reference being made to cross-cutting, winzing, and sinking. The amount of tons crushed is announced. There is serious talk of ore being extracted. Indeed, there has already been a most alarming yield in fine gold. In short, it can no longer be hushed up that the property may at any moment be placed on a dividend-paying basis. Probably I shall be getting a safe five per cent. Dash it all, I said to my solicitor this morning, I might just as well have bought a rotten mortgage. The Financier, Part 2 18 Months Later it is nearly two years ago that I began speculating in West African mines. You may remember what a stir my entry into the financial world created, how Sir Isaac Isaacstein went mad and shot himself, how Sir Samuel Samuelstein went mad and shot his typist, and how Sir Moses Mosesstein went mad and shot his typewriter, permanently damaging the letter S. There was panic in the city on that February day in 1912 when I bought jaguars and set the market rocking. I bought jaguars partly for the rise and partly for the thrill. In describing my speculation to you 18 months ago, I dwelt chiefly on the thrill part. I alleged that I wanted to see them go up and down. It would have been more accurate to have said that I wanted to see them go up. It was because I was sure they were going up that, with the united support of my solicitor, my stockbroker, my land agent, my doctor, my architect, and my vicar, most of them hired for the occasion, I bought fifty shares in the Jaguar mine of West Africa. When I bought Jaguars, they were at one and one-sixteenths. This means that... No, on second thoughts, I won't. There was a time when, in the pride of my new knowledge, I should have insisted on explaining to you what it meant, but I am getting blasé now. Besides, you probably know, 
It is enough that I bought them, and bought them on the distinct understanding from my financial adviser that by the end of the month they would be up to two. In that case, I should have made rather more than forty pounds in a few days, simply by assembling together my solicitor, stockbroker, land agent, etc., etc., in London, and without going to West Africa at all. A wonderful thought. At the end of the month, jaguars were steady at one and one-sixteenth. I had received a report from the mine to the effect that, down below, they were simply hacking gold out as fast as they could hack, and up at the top were very busy rinsing and washing and sponging and drying it. The next month, the situation was the same. Jaguars in London very steady at one and one-sixteenth. Jaguar diggers in West Africa very steady at gold digging. And at the end of the third month, I realized not only that I was not going to have any thrills at all, but, even worse, that I was not going to make any money at all. I had been deceived. That was where, eighteen months ago, I left the story of my city life. A good deal has happened since then as a result of which I am once more eagerly watching the price of jaguars. A month or two after I had written about them, jaguars began to go down. They did it, as they have done everything since I've known them, stupidly. If they had dropped in a single night to three quarters, I should at least have had my thrill. I should have suffered in a single night the loss of some pounds, and I could have borne it dramatically, either with the sternness of the silent Saxon, or else with the volubility of the volatile... I can't think of anybody beginning with a V. But, alas, jaguars never dropped at all. They subsided. They subsided slowly back to one. So slowly that you could hardly observe them going. A week later, they were sixty-three sixty-fourths, which, of course, is practically the same as one. A month afterwards, they were thirty-one thirty-seconds, and it is a debatable point whether that is less or more than sixty-three sixty-fourths. Anyhow, by the time I had it worked out and decided that it was slightly less, they were sixty-one sixty-fourths, and one had the same trouble all over again. At sixty-one sixty-fourths, I left them for a time, and when I next read the financial column, they were at fifteen sixteenths, which still seemed to be fairly near to one. And even when at last, after many months, I found them down to seven-eighths, I was not seriously alarmed, but felt that it was due to some little local trouble, as that the manager had fallen down the main shaft, and was preventing the gold being shot out properly, and that, when the obstruction had been removed, jaguars would go up to one again. But they didn't. They continued to subside. When they had subsided to one half, I woke up. My dream of financial glory was over. I had lost my money and my faith in the city. Well, let them go. With an effort, I washed jaguars out of my mind. Henceforward, they were nothing to me. And then, months after, 
Andrew came on the scene. At lunch one day he happened to mention that he had been talking to his broker. "'Do you often talk to your broker?' I asked in admiration. It sounded so magnificent. "'Often. I haven't got a broker to talk to. When you next chat with yours, I wish you'd lead the conversation round to Jaguars and see what he says. Why, have you got some? Yes, but they're no good. Have a cigarette, won't you? Next morning, to my amazement, I got a telegram from Andrew. Can get you ten shillings for Jaguars. Wire if you will sell and how many. It was really a shock to me. When I had asked Andrew to mention Jaguars to his broker, it was solely in the hope of hearing some humorous city comment on their futility, one of those crisp jests for which the stock exchange is famous. I had no idea that his broker might like to buy them from me. I wired back, sell fifty, quick. Next day he told me he had sold them. That's all right, I said cheerfully. They're his. He can watch them go up and down. When do I get my twenty-five pounds? To save twenty-five pounds from the wreck was wonderful. Not for a month, and of course you don't deliver the shares till then. What do you mean, deliver the shares? I asked in alarm. I haven't got the gold mine here. It's in Africa somewhere. Must I go out and... "'But you've got a certificate for them.' My heart sank. "'Have I?' I whispered. "'Good Lord, I wonder where it is.' I went home and looked. I looked for two days. I searched drawers and desks and letter books and safes and ice tanks and trouser presses, every place in which a certificate might hide. It was no good. I went back to Andrew.' I was calm. About these jaguars, I said casually, I don't quite understand my position. What have I promised to do, and can they put me in prison if I don't do it? You've promised to sell fifty jaguars to a man called Stevens by the middle of next month, that's all. I see, I said, and I went home again. And I suppose you see, too, I've got to sell fifty jaguars to a man called Stevens by the middle of next month. Although I really have fifty fully matured ones of my own, there's nothing to prove it, and they are so suspicious in the city that they will never take my bare word. So I shall have to buy fifty new jaguars for this man called Stevens, and buy them by the middle of next month. And this is why I am still eagerly watching the price of jaguars. Yesterday they were five-eighths. I'm hoping that by the middle of next month they will be down to one-half again. But I find it difficult to remember sometimes which way I want them to go. This afternoon, for instance, when I saw they had risen to eleven-sixteenths, I was quite excited for a moment. I went out and bought some cigars on the strength of it. Then I remembered, and I came home and almost decided to sell the pianola. It is very confusing. You must see how very confusing it is. The Double I was having lunch in one of those places where you stand and eat sandwiches until you're tired, and then try to count up how many you've had. 
As the charm of these sandwiches is that they all taste exactly alike, it is difficult to recall each individual as it went down. One feels, too, after the last sandwich, that one's mind would more willingly dwell upon other matters. Personally, I detest the whole business, the place, the sandwiches, the method of scoring, but it is convenient and quick, and I cannot keep away. On this afternoon, I was giving the foie gras plate a turn. I know a man who will never touch foie gras because of the cruelty involved in the preparation of it. I excuse myself on the ground that my own sufferings in eating these sandwiches are much greater than those of any goose in providing them. There was a grey-haired man in the corner who kept looking at me. I seemed to myself to be behaving with sufficient propriety, and there was nothing in my clothes or appearance to invite comment, for in the working quarter of London a high standard of beauty is not insisted upon. On the next occasion, when I caught his eye, I frowned at him, and a moment later I found myself trying to stare him down. After two minutes, it was I who retired in confusion to my glass. As I prepared to go, for to be watched at meals makes me nervous, and leads me sometimes to eat the card with foie gras on it, in mistake for the sandwich, he came up to me and raised his hat. "'You must excuse me, sir, for staring at you,' he said. "'But has anyone ever told you that you are exactly like A. E. Barrett?' I drew myself up and rested my left hand lightly on my hip. I thought he said David Garrick. "'The very image of him,' he went on, when I first met him. Something told me that in spite of his grey hair he was not talking of David Garrick after all. "'Like who?' I said, in some disappointment. "'A. E. Barrett.' I tried to think of a reply, both graceful and witty. The only one I can think of was, "'Oh?' "'It's extraordinary. If your hair were just a little longer, the likeness would be perfect.' I thought of offering to go away now and come back in a month's time. Anyway, it would be an excuse for going now.' "'I first knew him at Cambridge,' he explained. "'We were up together in the seventies. "'Ah, I was up in the nineteen hundreds,' I said. "'I just missed you both.' "'Well, didn't they ever tell you at Cambridge "'that you were the image of A. E. Barrett?' "'I tried to think. "'They had told me lots of things at Cambridge, "'but I couldn't remember any talk about A. E. Barrett. "'I should have thought that everyone would have noticed it,' he said. I had something graceful for him this time, all right. Probably, I said, those who were unfortunate enough to know me had not the honor of knowing A. E. Barrett. But everybody knew A. E. Barrett. You've heard of him, of course. The dreadful moment had arrived. I knew it would. Of course, I said. A charming fellow. Very brainy, I agreed. "'Well, just ask any of your artist friends if they don't notice the likeness. "'The nose, the eyes, the expression. Wonderful. "'But I must be going. Perhaps I shall see you here again some day. "'Good afternoon.' "'And he raised his hat and left me. "'You can understand that I was considerably disturbed. First, 
Why had I never heard of A. E. Barrett? Secondly, what sort of looking fellow was he? Thirdly, with all this talk about A. E. Barrett, however many sandwiches had I eaten? The last question seemed the most impossible to answer. So I said, eight, to be on the safe side, and went back to work. In the evening, I called upon Peter. My acquaintance of the afternoon had assumed too readily that I should allow myself to be on friendly terms with artists, but Peter's wife illustrates books, and they both talk, in a disparaging way, of our greatest academicians. Who, I began at once, as I shook hands, did I remind you of as I came in the door? Peter was silent. Mrs. Peter, feeling that some answer was called for, said, the cat. No, no, now I'll come in again. I went out and returned dramatically. Now then, tell me frankly, doesn't that remind you of A. E. Barrett entering his studio? Who is A. E. Barrett? I was amazed at their ignorance. He's the well-known artist. Surely you've heard of him. I seem to know the name, lied Peter. What did he paint? Sunrise on the Alps, a corner of the West, the long day wanes. I don't know. Something, the usual thing. And are you supposed to be like him? I am, particularly when eating sandwiches. Is it worthwhile getting you some in order to observe the likeness? asked Mrs. Peter. If you've never seen A. E. Barrett, I fear you'd miss the likeness, even in the most favorable circumstances. Anyhow, you must have heard of him, dear old A. E. They were utterly ignorant of him, so I sat down and told them what I knew, which, put shortly, was that he was a very remarkable-looking fellow. I have not been to the sandwich place since. Detesting the sandwiches, as I do, I find A. E. Barrett a good excuse for keeping away for upon the day after that when he came into my life, I had a sudden cold fear that the thing was a plant. How, in what way, I cannot imagine. That I am to be sold a guide to Cambridge at the next meeting, that an A. E. Barrett hair restorer is about to be placed on the market, that an offer will be made to enlarge my photograph, or Barrett's, free of charge if I buy the frame, no, I cannot think what it can be. Yet, after all, why should it be a plant? We Barretts are not the sort of men to be mixed up with fraud. Impetuous, the Barrett type may be, obstinate, jealous, so much you see in our features, but dishonest, never. Still, as I did honestly detest those last eight sandwiches, I shall stay away. A Breath of Life This is the story of a comedy which nearly became a tragedy. In its way, it is rather a pathetic story. The comedy was called The Wooing of Winifred. It was written by an author whose name I forget, produced by the well-known and, as his press agent has often told us, popular actor-manager Mr. Levinsky, and played by, among others, that very charming young man, Prosper Vane, 
known locally as Alfred Briggs, until he took to the stage. Prosper played the young hero, Dick Seaton, who was actually wooing Winifred. Mr. Levinsky himself took the part of a middle-aged man of the world with a slight embonpoint, down in the program as Sir Geoffrey Throssell, but fortunately still Mr. Levinsky. His opening words as he came on were, "'Ah, Dick, I have a note for you somewhere,' which gave the audience an interval in which to welcome him, while he felt in all his pockets for the letter. One can bow quite easily while feeling in one's pockets, and it is much more natural than stopping in the middle of an important speech in order to acknowledge any cheers. The realization of this, by a dramatist, is what is called stagecraft. In this case, the audience could tell at once that the technique of the author, whose name I unfortunately forget, was going to be all right. But perhaps I had better describe the whole play as shortly as possible. The theme, as one guessed from the title, even before the curtain rose, was The Wooing of Winifred. In the first act, Dick proposed to Winifred and was refused by her, not from lack of love, but for fear lest she might spoil his career, he being one of those big-hearted men with a hip pocket to whom the open spaces of the world call loudly. Whereupon Mr. Levinsky took Winifred on one side and told the audience how, when he had been a young man, some good woman had refused him for a similar reason, and had been miserable ever since. Accordingly, in the second act, Winifred withdrew her refusal and offered to marry Dick, who declined to take advantage of her offer for fear that she was willing to marry him from pity rather than from love. Whereupon, Mr. Levinsky took Dick on one side and told the audience how, when he had been a young man, he had refused to marry some good woman, a different one, for a similar reason, and had been broken-hearted ever afterwards. In the third act, it really seemed as though they were coming together at last, for at the beginning of it, Mr. Levinsky took them both aside and told the audience a parable about a butterfly and a snapdragon, which was both pretty and helpful, and caused several middle-aged ladies in the first and second rows of the upper circle to say, "'What a nice man Mr. Levinsky must be at home, dear!' The purport of the allegory being to show that both Dick and Winifred were being very silly, as indeed by this time everybody but the author was aware. Unfortunately, at that moment, a footman entered with a telegram for Miss Winifred, which announced that she had been left fifty thousand pounds by a dead uncle in Australia. And, although Mr. Levinsky seized this fresh opportunity to tell the audience how, in similar circumstances, pride, to his lasting remorse, had kept him and some good woman, a third one, apart, Nevertheless, Dick held back once more, for fear lest he should be thought to be burying her for her money. The curtain comes down as he says, Goodbye, good er, I. But there is a fourth act, 
and in the fourth act Mr. Levinsky has a splendid time. He tells the audience two parables, one about a dahlia and a sheep, which I couldn't quite follow, and three reminiscences of life in India. He brings together, finally and forever, these hesitating lovers, and, best of all, he has a magnificent love scene of his own with a pretty widow, in which we see, for the first time in the play, how love should really be made. Not boy and girl, pretty, pretty love, but the deep emotion felt, and with occasional lapses of memory explained, by a middle-aged man with a slight embonpoint who has knocked about the world a bit and knows life. Mr. Levinsky, I need not say, was at his best in this act. I met Prosper Vane at the club some ten days before the first night and asked him how rehearsals were going. Oh, all right, he said, but it's a rotten play. I've got such a dashed silly part. From what you told me, I said, it sounded rather good. It's so dashed unnatural. For three whole acts, this girl and I are in love with each other, and we know we're in love with each other, and yet we simply fool about. She's a dashed pretty girl, too, my boy. In real life, I jolly soon... My dear Alfred, I protested, you're not going to fall in love with the girl you have to fall in love with on the stage. I thought actors never did that. They do, sometimes. It's a dashed good advertisement. Anyway, it's a silly part, and I'm fed up with it. Yes, but do be reasonable. If Dick got engaged at once to Winifred, what would happen to Levinsky? He'd have nothing to do. Prosper Vane grunted. As he seemed disinclined for further conversation, I left him. The opening night came, and the usual distinguished and fashionable audience, including myself, such as habitually attends Mr. Levinsky's first nights, settled down to enjoy itself. Two acts went well. At the end of each, Mr. Levinsky came before the curtain and bowed to us, and we had the honor of clapping him loud and long. Then the third act began. Now this is how the third act ends. Exit Sir Geoffrey. Winifred, breaking the silence. Dick, you heard what he said. Don't let this silly money come between us. I have told you I love you, dear. Won't you, won't you speak to me? Dick. Winifred, I... He gets up and walks round the room, his brow knotted, his right fist occasionally striking his left palm. Finally, he comes to a stand in front of her. Winifred, I... He raises his arms slowly at right angles to his body and then lets them fall heavily down again. I can't. In a low, hoarse voice, I can't. He stands for a moment with his bent head, then with a jerk he pulls himself together. Goodbye. His hands go out to her, but he draws them back as if frightened to touch her, nobly. Good bye. He squares his shoulders and stands looking at the audience with his chin in the air, then with a shrug of utter despair, which would bring tears into the eyes of any young thing in the pit, he turns and, with bent head, walks slowly out. Curtain. 
That is how the third act ends. I went to the dress rehearsal, and so I know. How the accident happened, I do not know. I suppose Prosper was nervous. I am sure he was very much in love. Anyhow, this is how, on that famous first night, the third act ended. Exit, Sir Geoffrey. Winifred, breaking the silence. Dick, you heard what he said. Don't let this silly money come between us. I have told you I love you, dear. Won't you, won't you speak to me? Dick, jumping up. Winifred, I, with a great gulp, I love you. Whereupon he picked her up in his arms and carried her triumphantly off the stage, and after a little natural hesitation the curtain came down. Behind the scenes all was consternation. Mr. Levinsky, absolutely furious, had a hasty consultation with the author, also furious, in the course of which they both saw that the fourth act, as written, was now an impossibility. Poor Prosper, who had almost immediately recovered his sanity, tremblingly suggested that Mr. Levinsky should announce that, owing to the sudden illness of Mr. Vane, the fourth act could not be given. Mr. Levinsky was kind enough to consider this suggestion not entirely stupid, his own idea having been, very regretfully, to leave out the two parables and three reminiscences of India, and concentrate on the love scene with the widow. "'Yes, yes,' he said, "'your plan is better. I will say you are ill. It is true, you are mad.' "'Tomorrow we will play it as it was written.' "'You can't,' said the author gloomily. "'The critics won't come till the fourth act, "'and they'll assume that the third act ended as it did tonight. "'The fourth act will seem all nonsense to them.' "'True, and I was so good, so much myself in that act.' "'He turned to Prosper. "'You fool!' "'Or there's another way,' began the author.' We might. And then a gentleman in the gallery settled it from the front of the curtain. There was nothing in the program to show that the play was in four acts. The time is present day and the scene is Sir Geoffrey Throssell's townhouse, was all it said. And the gentleman in the gallery, thinking it was all over and being pleased with the play, and particularly with the realism of the last moment of it, shouted, Author! And suddenly everybody else cried, Author! Author! The play was ended. I said this was the story of a comedy which nearly became a tragedy. But it turned out to be no tragedy at all. In the three acts to which Prosper Vane had condemned it, the play appealed to both critics and public. For the fourth act, as he recognized so clearly, was unnecessary and would have spoilt the balance of it entirely. Best of all, the shortening of the play demanded that some entertainment should be provided in front of it to introduce to the public Professor Wallabalakala and Princess Kalabalawala, the famous exponents of the Bongo Bongo, that fascinating Central African war dance which was soon to be the rage of society. 
But though, as a result, the takings of the box office surpassed all Mr. Levinsky's previous records, our friend Prosper Vane received no practical acknowledgment of his services. He had to be content with the hand and the heart of the lady who played Winifred, and the fact that Mr. Levinsky was good enough to attend the wedding. There was, in fact, a photograph in all the papers of Mr. Levinsky. End of section 5